I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, welcome to Classics Unlocked, brought to you by Universal Music and Classics Direct. I'm Graham Abbott. Mention the words Elgar and Concerto in the same sentence, and the chances are the piece that will come to mind is his famous cello concerto, written and premiered in 1919. But Sir Edward Elgar, who lived from 1857 to 1934, wrote two concertos and planned a third which was never completed. The unfinished concerto was a piano concerto, of which only one movement survives in a performable state. The other concerto he completed is his violin concerto, one of his largest works, yet it's not played anywhere as often as the cello concerto. In this program, I want to give you a broad introduction to both the Violin Concerto and the Cello Concerto, using two recordings made many decades apart. In the Violin Concerto, the soloist will be Alfredo Campoli in a recording made in 1954. The soloist in the Cello Concerto will be Sheku Kane-Mason in a recording made in 2019. A concerto is generally described as a large-scale work for a solo instrument and orchestra, in which the solo part is virtuosic and technically demanding. Both Elgar's concertos require soloists with formidable technique and musicianship, but his solo parts focus on musical development and emotional expression first, with virtuosity and technical display being for musical and expressive reasons rather than for their own sake. It's important to bear this in mind when approaching both these works. The technical demands serve the musical ones. Elgar's Violin Concerto was written with a particular soloist in mind, in this case the Austrian virtuoso Fritz Kreisler. Regarded as one of the greatest violinists of all time, Kreisler was 35 when he gave the premiere, with Elgar conducting, in 1910. Kreisler, like many European musicians at the start of the 20th century, admired Elgar enormously. The famous Austro-Hungarian conductor Hans Richter thought Elgar one of the greatest living composers, and Kreisler himself went so far as to say in 1905 that he regarded Elgar as the greatest living composer, this at a time when both Mahler and Richard Strauss were active. Mahler wrote no concertos, and Strauss very few. Their interest lay in other genres. 
Elgar too preferred to write orchestral works like overtures and symphonies or choral works or small-scale vocal and instrumental pieces. But when Chrysler's request for a concerto, first made in 1907, was supported by a formal commission from the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra in 1909, Elgar set to work. What he created grows out of a long and noble line of romantic violin concertos, from Beethoven and Mendelssohn via Bruch through Tchaikovsky and Brahms, while at the same time charting new territory for such a work. Cast in the traditional three movements of the classic concerto form, Elgar's concerto is on a large scale. In performance, it can take anywhere between 45 and 55 minutes, and its demands on both soloist and orchestra are many and varied. The first movement has a long, formal introduction, in which the orchestra announces the main themes before the soloist is heard.
Helga, always a severe self-critic, actually thought very highly of this work. In his own words, it's good, awfully emotional, too emotional, but I love it. The emotional tone of the piece is unmistakable, but there's a mystery hanging over it which clearly fed into its emotional mood. On the score, Elgar wrote an inscription in Spanish. Drawn from a novel by Alain René Lesage, it says, Aquí está encerrada el alma de... Herein is enshrined the soul of... It trails off with five dots where a name would go. Elgar was in a long and stable marriage. He loved his wife Alice, whom he had wed in 1889, and she was entirely devoted to him. But he had several close female friends, both before and after his wife's death in 1920. Of one or two of these, it could possibly be said that he was in love, although there's no suggestion of a physical relationship with these other women. His love, if such it was, was expressed in his music. Much ink has been spilt in an attempt to identify whose soul is enshrined in the violin concerto. Apart from the rather obvious idea that it's the composer's own soul, or that of his wife, there are two main contenders, both women with whom he was very close. One is another Alice, Alice Stuart Wortley, daughter of the painter John Everett Millay. She and Elgar exchanged passionate letters, some of which they destroyed, and his nickname for her was Windflower. Elgar called some of the concerto's themes by the same name, and referred to the piece as Our Concerto. The other contender is an American woman, Julia Worthington, who was a friend of the composer and known to her friends as Pippa. The evidence for the Spanish inscription referring to her comes from Dora Powell, a woman Elgar immortalised in the Dorabella movement of the Enigma Variations. She recalled an occasion on which she was looking at the score at Elgar's house when Alice Elgar calmly informed her that the missing name was that of Julia Worthington. Powell believed that the five dots could have equally referred to Julia or Pippa, both names of five letters, and thus considered the matter settled. Whatever the emotional inspiration for the violin concerto, there can be no doubt as to the emotional power of the music. The sublime slow movement is described by Elgar biographer Michael Kennedy as a display of sustained and noble eloquence.
movement of Elgar's Violin Concerto begins with a dazzling passage for the soloist, suggesting that this will be a conventional concerto finale full of soloistic fireworks and breathtaking display. As Elgar has shown before, he's more than ready to subvert our expectations and take us to new places. Dazzling this finale might be, but at its core is a passage which is unique in the annals of the Romantic Concerto. For two and a half centuries, a solo concerto in the European tradition was expected to have at least one cadenza, a passage in which the orchestra stops while the soloist elaborates on the themes at hand with great virtuosic display. Oddly enough, neither the first nor second movements of Elgar's Violin Concerto contains a cadenza, but in the third there is what the composer called a cadenza accompagnata, an accompanied cadenza. While other composers before and after Elgar occasionally had some incursions from the orchestra into a soloist's cadenza, I think it's fair to say that there's no other concerto in the mainstream repertoire with an accompanied cadenza quite like this. Rather than a moment of simple display, this section is described by Michael Kennedy as the emotional and structural climax of the whole work. While the solo violin freely restates and embellishes themes from earlier movements, the strings, horns and timpani accompany. The string accompany is particularly novel, with the composer requiring a pizzicato tremolo. His footnote says it should sound thrummed, as a foundation to the soloist's flight of fancy. And it goes on for nearly seven minutes. Here's just a part of it.
It's a powerful and emotional moment, but it eventually gives way to a return of the hectic music from the start of the finale to bring the piece to a truly satisfying close. Sadly, its various complexities, not to mention its length, have often meant that Elgar's Violin Concerto is rarely heard live outside Britain these days. But whether live or on recordings, it amply repays careful listening. The recording I used for these examples was made in London in 1954 and is available on a Decca Eloquence reissue. The soloist was the Italian-born British violinist Alfredo Campoli with the London Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Sir Adrian Bolt. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Turning now to Elgar's more famous concerto, the Cello Concerto of 1919, we come immediately to an interesting misconception. Elgar lived until 1934, and the cello concerto is always described using words like autumnal and farewell. It's painted as a work presaging death, or at least resigning oneself to one's mortality. And as such, it's often thought of as a work of Elgar's final years. To discover it was written 15 years before his death can come as a surprise. The Violin Concerto was in fact Elgar's last popular success. All his subsequent works met with varying degrees of indifference or incomprehension, and these include some large-scale creations which are, thankfully, regarded today as the masterpieces they are. These include the Second Symphony of 1911, the Cantata The Music Makers of 1912, and the tone poem Falstaff, which dates from 1913. The great dividing line which tore across all of Europe was, of course, the First World War, which began the following year. The Great War of 1914-18 shattered the cultural assumptions of humanity, and Elgar, like all people close to the action, felt it keenly. In 1918, at the age of 61, he underwent surgery to treat infected tonsils, and on regaining consciousness, wrote down the theme which would eventually be the basis of the cello concerto's first movement. Both the composer and his wife were experiencing health problems, and they retired to a cottage in Sussex to recuperate. During the course of 1918, Elgar wrote three beautiful chamber works, the E minor violin sonata, a string quartet in the same key, and a piano quintet in A minor. Only then did he embark on the cello concerto. A number of colleagues had suggested over the years that he write such a work, but only now did it seem right for him to do so. The cello concerto is also in the key of E minor, but unlike the violin concerto, which delays revealing the home key for some time, the cello concerto begins with the unambiguous statement of the work's tonal home, and from the soloist rather than the orchestra, in a recitative of extraordinary darkness. (laughs) ¶¶ 
After this, the cello climbs to a note which starts the theme Elgar wrote after his surgery. It starts in the violas and falls to the cellos like leaves from a tree. Autumn is inescapable in this piece. A major point of difference between the violin concerto and the cello concerto is the way they're constructed. The violin concerto follows the traditional three-movement concerto pattern, fast, slow, fast. The cello concerto, on the other hand, harks back to earlier times with a four-movement structure which would, superficially, not have been unfamiliar to Telemann or Handel, slow, fast, slow, fast. Also, at around half an hour in performance, the cello concerto is much shorter than the violin concerto, but it's no less emotionally powerful for that. The second theme of the first movement occasionally inhabits a lighter mood, but the feeling of sadness and resignation is never far away.
in the violin concerto, Elgar delayed the cadenza until the third movement. Here in the cello concerto, we've already had a cadenza of sorts at the very beginning. Now we have another linking the first and second movements. It contains little hints of the second movement's twitchy, nervous theme interspersed among pizzicato chords which seem to hold the tide back. But before long, the perpetual motion of the fast second movement is underway, with the cello playing almost non-stop for the entire movement.
breathless activity of the second movement is in stark contrast to the almost timeless sense of repose captured in the third. We heard the start of the third movement at the beginning of the program, but it's good to hear it again, especially now that we've heard what precedes it. It looks so simple on the page, but as with the slow movement of the violin concerto, Elgar here captures something words can't express. These pages are yet another enigma, the private thoughts of a man dealing with the horrors of the wider world and his own place as an artist within it.
the sense of an eternally unanswered question hangs over the slow movement. The fourth and final movement starts angrily in music of no fixed tonality before the cello is given yet another recitative-like passage containing a hint of the main theme to come. This ends with another cadenza, the whole acting not only as a link between the third and fourth movements, but also as an introduction to the melody of the finale. Diana McVeigh rightly points out in Grove Online that so much is made of the poignancy of the cello concerto that its daring can be overlooked. It's passages like the start of the fourth movement which show how daring Elgar was in this work. It's intensely dramatic and completely engrossing without being disjointed or predictable. theme simultaneously jaunty yet somehow malevolent the finale is underway the finale contains challenging virtuoso passages for the soloist as one would expect in a concerto but again their function is not just decorative or demonstrative they're dramatic almost narrative yet again subverts our expectations of the concerto form. The tempo slows and a new theme is introduced. 
it slows further, and we're reminded of the aching theme of the third movement. It then comes to a complete standstill. The dramatic power of the music here is incredible, and more from what's not said as much as from anything else. Eventually, Elgar takes us right back to the start of the concerto, to the soloist's opening chords, before whisking us into an abrupt return of the finale theme and an even more abrupt final chord. The ending is inspired and yet a shock, and it may be one of the reasons the work's first performance in 1919, under the composer's baton with Felix Salmon as soloist, was a complete failure. Elgar certainly never blamed his soloist, with whom he worked again subsequently. The principal reason for the disastrous premiere was undoubtedly lack of rehearsal. The rest of the program was conducted by Albert Coates, who constantly overran his allotted rehearsal time, thus depriving Elgar of his. The cello concerto had to wait until Jacqueline Dupre stunned the musical world with her performances of it in the early 1960s, before it was generally realised what a masterpiece it was. Her recording of it with Sir John Barbaroli was made for EMI in 1965, when she was just 20, and it's never been out of the catalogue. The cello concerto led the Elgar Renaissance, which brought the composer's music back into the mainstream after being out of fashion in the decades following his death. After the cello concerto, in the remaining 15 years of his life, Elgar wrote very little and published nothing of consequence, to use Diana McVeigh's words. The cello concerto was his last major work and his last truly personal musical statement. The recording I used in this program was made in London in 2019 and recently released on the Decca label. The soloist, also 20 years old at the time, was Sheku Kanemason with the London Symphony Orchestra conducted by Sir Simon Rattle. Many thanks to Tom Ford and Jakub Garoshinsky for the technical production of Classics Unlocked. I'm Graham Abbott and we'll end our time together with the final moments of Elgar's Cello Concerto.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.